Hello and welcome to the Week in Review, a new weekly podcast in which Bournebrook contributors will analyse the main political or cultural events in the week gone by. Three topics will be discussed, one chosen by each presenter or guest, and we'll tie up by looking to the week ahead. You can find every episode each Saturday on our YouTube channel. Enjoy. I'm Michael Curzon, Bournebrook's editor, and I'm joined today by Luke Perry and SD Wickett. We're going to be talking about the news over the last week, and as with most news weeks from 2020 and already in 2021, it's not been the most positive week, but we're going to choose one news story each, which we'll talk around 15 minutes about, and then at the end we might try and bring up something slightly more cheery so as to not make the episode too miserable. But first of all, we'll go over to Luke, who has the most topical story of the week. Luke, what have you been reading about? Yes, uh, I seem to have the lion's share of what's going to coverage in the world. It is, the, of course, the storming of the US Capitol. And I'm going to start by saying what happened, brief overview of perhaps why it happened, then talk about why it's perhaps symbolic and what the future holds for the United States. So it all started around one in the afternoon, um, Washington DC time, where a few hundred Trump supporters gathered around the US Capitol building and immediately began breaking past barriers and then moved into the US Capitol building. They went through multiple entrances, sometimes smashing windows to enter the building. As soon as they were inside, the, um, the Senate and the House chambers were evacuated. Vice President Mike Pence, who was chairing the Senate debate, was quickly bundled out by security and it, within a matter of about half an hour, the, the mob, which we can call it that, was nearly in nearly every corner of the building. And of course, the eyes of the world were on Washington, D.C. President-elect Joe Biden, of course, condemned the actions in a televised speech, referred to the um, U.S. Capitol as the citadel of liberty and the bedrock of the country's democracy, and called on Trump to um, push back against the rioters who are his own side. Shortly after, Trump did release a video telling the mob to um, pack up and go home. But in the same breath, and this is important, he called the election fraudulent, which likely continued to spur on the, the protest. And of course, uh, as we've seen over the past year with these types of scenes, the um, riots, protests inevitably turned violent. A 35-year-old woman called Ashley Babbitt was shot dead by security when she approached the House chamber where members of Congress were sheltering. A police officer, Brian Sicknick, died from his injuries he sustained trying to push back at the rioters, and at least 56 other police officers were injured. And th this has sort of been committed by the party of law and order and back the blue. Severe case of irony. Three other protesters also died at the scene in what is described as medical emergencies. One of the protesters had high blood pressure and um, the scene was just too much for him. In the aftermath, the DC police have since arrested 80 people for the storming of the US Capitol. And we should expect hefty prison sentences to be carried out. It's something akin to 20 years in federal prison for sedition. So, and also why this happened, well, it all goes back to what Trump foolishly said in that interview when he tried to pull the rioters away. He called the election rigged. Now, the election being rigged was why the mob gathered outside America's bedrock of democracy in the first place. They were trying to disrupt a Senate hearing over the confirmation of Biden's electoral votes to confirm him as the next president. But the day wasn't chosen at random. And uh, it, this can all generally lead back to the president's incitement. And since his election defeat became clear, 
Trump and his legal team have, um, we've all seen the Twitter feed, just peddled conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory that the election was rigged. And even after court defeat after court defeat, Trump has still refused to concede. And his hardcore base, which he spurred on, it sees him as the messiah and of course have rallied to um, this course of action. And this is not just a one-off incident, one-off, one-off incident, it's like the explosion of a powder keg. And since the election, there were protests by Trump supporters in other cities, such, such as Atlanta in Georgia, a state which Trump rather unexpectedly lost. And even on an election night itself, a group of Trump, groups of Trump supporters were crowding around polling stations after Trump fired off a couple of tweets about a rigged election. So what, what, why is this rather symbolic? Well, first, of course, it's a, a direct attack on the democracy. It's an act of sedition and some would even say it's an act of terrorism. They have used violence to disrupt the democratic process, to intimidate lawmakers. It, if the UK, it would be akin to a, the, the Labour Party breaking through, in, into Labour activists breaking through the House of Commons because they didn't like Boris being elected. It also, rather frighteningly, shows that the uh, American right has become radicalised. And all throughout the Trump administration, it was the American left that resorted to incivility and sowing disorder. Now, with Trump losing power, part of the American right have now resorted to the tactics of its foe. And but with Biden taking power, the Democrat Party have tried to distance itself from these more radical elements. So you see the, the sides of order and disorder changing places as the balance of power changes. So what? what future does this hold well when i was watching the coverage on cnn one of the news anchors called van jones pondered whether this is the start of something or the end of something and i think the protests on capitol hill were are the continuation of something and that something is the uh, increasing polarization in fact balkanization of american society that we have seen brew over the last few years since trump came to power and many have called Biden a unifying figure. I have to disagree. Biden will not unite the country, that the partisanship will continue, the protests and riots will continue. Many Trump supporters believe that victory was stolen from them through election fraud, so that they're not going to take this lying down. And just look at how much of the uh, American left reacted when their own side thought Putin rigged the 2016 election. So it's history appearing in irony and um, in partisanship and I think that American democracy always been fairly fragile is about to fracture even further and in general democracies are stable when there's general unity between the populace so they agree that the election is free and fair they watch the same news they share the same culture they respect their fellow man if there's a political disagreement you don't view your opponent as a bad faith actor as evil you just see that they've got a different opinion on how to make the world a better place that is now gone trump supporters live in their own little bubble that the election was rigged that biden's coming to get them and but the democrats as we've seen for the last four years also live in their own bubble their own echo chamber and it's turned into a, a total battle of the warring tribes where where even double standards are um, justified. And then the main Luke, thing on I the want point, to... If I could just yeah. quickly, on the point of, of Trump um, using his speech to talk about how the election itself was rigged and fraudulent, Facebook afterwards and Instagram, which is owned by 
the same company uh, banned Trump from the platforms indefinitely, yes. they said, though it seems until he isn't president. The point mm. obviously being that they, they think that he is, is, um, is making the, the, the mob worse, making mm. the mob hungry and angry. Now, we're going, next, we're going to talk about censorship with uh, talk radio and YouTube earlier this week. Uh, which we, of course, disagree with. But on this point, with Trump, how do you draw the balance? It, I mean, it seems that um, Facebook has had it out against Trump for some time, and this is probably just uh, one excuse that it can grab at properly. I mean, but how do you draw the line between uh, between censoring and trying to keep the peace on a, on a matter like this? Well, so the, the line has, has always been very difficult. But um, I think just to drag away from your point, I think this may incite Trump supporters further. They view the big tech liberal enemies censoring their president. And I think Facebook sort of um, made a, and the social media sites made a very quick decision. And I do think that, um, that if, if it was ever brought to a hearing, it would have been justified because um, Trump, although he's telling them to go home, is still sort of spurring them on. And it's not just a difference of opinion. This is inciting sedition. Uh, I think the social media did did strike the balance fairly well in that regard. If I could just jump in quickly, I think, I think um, it was almost a symbolic moment where um, it really felt like the the end of the Trump presidency. Where in the ne his statement the next day, he you know he finally uh, candidly acknowledged that the election was over that uh, Biden would be the next president. And, um, and it, his tone changed from, you know, saying this election was rigged, this was stolen from us, to there now needs to be serious work done into fixing the electoral process uh, to, you know, guarantee um, that voters can be verified and identified. And it, it was quite an interesting turnaround from him. I, if, if it felt like he, him watching that kind of knew it was over. Yeah, I, I think he saw that in the headlights as well. You can also see with the quick resigning of um, many or much of his staff. And you can see that. And even the Republican Party itself, as soon as that happened, they immediately backed away from Trump. They, um, and although, although Trump, you know, DG, you know, kind of condemned the riots, although very plainly, he, um, the Republican Party, I think, will now try and distance itself very far from Trump. And Trump, I think, saw that the game was up. I don't think it will be the end of Trump himself. He'll still be a rather influential figure. But mm. the end of the Trump presidency, it's got no fire left after this. There's no justification. Well, I mean, tr the, 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 the power in politics comes with the narrative, right? And this was, um, in a way, this just gifted uh, his opponents the narrative, in a way. Yeah. Where does this leave Trump for in four years' time? I mean, I've seen uh, Dellingpole and others, and even Trump himself, to an extent, saying, all right, we've lost this. As you say, this is the end of Trumpism for now. We've got four years where we'll, we'll have to disagree but be peaceful about that, but that the war will come later, is essentially what some have been saying, that come 2024, with the next election, he's going in at it again, even harder after mobilising his support base uh, and carrying on, I'm sure, with the message of a a rigged and fraudulent election. Do you think that the Republican, the Republican Party will welcome him back in another four years or if he'll have to find another movement or if there'll just be nothing with which to run? 
I think the Republicans will keep him out at all costs. Do you think, though, that um, his his imprint is now eternally on the party? Like, going back to the sort of the milk toast GOP of people like Mitt Romney and 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 um, the people who you know who who failed to unseat Obama, um, will will the party just in a purely Machiavellian sense understand that this sort of you know fiery populism is the only way they can win now? Uh, it, they um. They were, I think many of the Republicans were shocked at the uh, election of Trump, as we all were. And I think they need to um, ditch the Trump image, but sort of morph that energy I- into someone else. That, I mean, we've seen how quickly in America that party images can change. They change with the presidential nominees. Mm. I mean, it was no longer the party of Romney. In the blink of an eye, it was the party of Trump. I think the Republicans can do something similar, but of mm. course with a different person. Mm. Yeah, and, and there are figures like um, like Josh Hawley, who's who's sort of fairly popular for the same um, rhetoric, not not as sort of uh, rambunctious, but um, similar. Just how how extreme were the measures the other day as well? I mean, of course, we've heard we've heard language like that this was an attempted coup or the end of democracy, but. Um, Collingwood wrote for us yesterday that we, we ought to have a little bit of caution that this, I think he said, is nothing new particularly under the sun, that we've seen similar events before and that to claim a few hundred people running around as a mob was an attempted coup is a bit far. Mm. Um, is this something to take so seriously as being an image of the end of democracy or is it mm, a, a little bit of a flash in the pan? Yeah, it, it is a bit of um, a bright flash. Uh, American democracy will continue for far long after this, but I can confidently say it, it was an attempt to um, disrupt the democratic process. Attempt it was because they did disrupt the Senate hearings on the day they were confirming Biden's electoral votes. But yeah, I think order will be restored. I mean, it has been restored in DC, and um, Biden will be president. I suppose it depends as well, though. If if Trump is able to manage to hold on to a lot of his base not within the republican party maybe but more broadly in the american population and is still able to put his message across to people and he will of course as we've said talk about the 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 fraudulence are going on the the rigging of the elections that whilst we might not be having an event like this happening every weekend the 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 lack of trust within politics might well stay and even get even further uh, for those who took part and others who who saw this and were sympathetic to the movement I mean, yes, uh, uh, as I've said, there's no unity anymore in American politics. One side, what one side preaches the gospel, the other side screams as fake news or misinformation. And there's, I I don't know how um, both sides can come together. I don't know how Biden can unify the nation because he may want to unify the nation, but what one side is refusing that at all costs. As I uh, pointed out in in, in my article for you, Michael, I think a, 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 in many ways, a Biden presidency could be a godsend to the American conservatives as, you know, you have, um, you have Biden, who I, who I suspect will be a sort of Henry the, Henry the Sixth type figure, um, sort of quite, um, quite weak in conviction and, and, and just sort of at the mercy of you know, various spads and special interests. And, and you have, you know, Harris waiting in the wings, who in the primaries was deeply unpopular. So the next, so depending on on how they play in the next four years, they they could be right back in four years' time. It it it, 
it's it's almost a a, a matter of policy. Quite. Um, I think having having talked as we did there about uh, Facebook and Instagram's uh, banning within that talk, it might be wise to go on to the the second topic from this week. Now, one of the the news story which grabbed my eye the most uh, this week was the banning by YouTube, which of course is owned by Google, of Talk Radio, which is a quite quite a good actually radio station in Britain. I suppose it tries to go off the lines of LBC, and it has uh, people like Mike Graham. Um, and others talking on their radio show. Now they, the, the channel was was cancelled, so to speak, earlier this week. All the videos were inaccessible, um, and we were talking about this actually, Sam. That it's it's likely that that YouTube was the the greatest source of views for Talk Radio. I think they're available on DAB and on the website, perhaps, but that most people will will just go onto the YouTube channels because they're they're accessible at any time rather than live. Yeah. So to to cancel that outright is such a big move. And the the reason that they didn't state it straight away that they did this um, quite clearly was because of talk on the coronavirus. Peter Hitchens is invited onto uh, Mike Graham's show every Monday and as we know from reading his columns, is uh, very opposed to the government's disproportionate response to the coronavirus. And I think it seems to be this which was flagged up. Now, what I found most interesting was that after the original banning, the channel did come up over the next day or the, the day after that. Uh, and in a statement, YouTube conceded that Talk Radio's channel had been suspended, but uh, deserved to be reinstated. Although they added we quickly removed flagged content that violated our community guidelines, including COVID-19 content. I'm sure it would be only that. Um, and that they made exceptions for material posted with education or other purposes. But some videos did remain down, specifically uh, videos including, as we said, Peter Hitchens, which went against the, the government's and the establishment's narrative on the coronavirus. And it, it seems to me although this is getting into some conspiracy sort of territory, that um, it was almost an on purpose that YouTube knew that removing the whole of talk radio station was a step too far, but that if they did this and then brought back most of the station other than a few videos, that people would be grateful that just some of it was back at all. Because I saw, I think, Julia Hartley Brewer is one of the other uh, presenters on the show. She was congratulating the return of the program and the fact that some of the videos, including anti-COVID uh, videos or anti-lockdown anti videos had still been removed was almost forgotten about. So it's as though they, they, they took a mile first and then left an inch. But because the rest of the mile had been left untouched, nobody realised. And that seems to me to be quite a, a scary way of going about matters in which nobody really picks up on the fact that so much has been destroyed. The conversation almost may as well never happened. Yeah, it, 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 it highlights such an alarming trend in our politics, which is um, one around civil liberties, you know, the, the right to question government policy. And it, it's, it's, um, it's a fixture of democracy, but you don't have that democratic uh, uh, mechanism when it's a private company out in America doing it. Um, and that's the most alarming thing is that these American multinationals have monopolized public life because, you know, YouTube and Facebook and Twitter is where elections are won and lost. It's where policy is disseminated. It's where, you know, the great debates of our day are had. And if, again, if a, if a private 
company is able to uh, set the rules without any accountability and just blanketly remove content and entire channels in this case, uh, we're not in a good place there. Especially with, at the moment, people aren't conversing in normal ways anyway. People yeah. aren't talking in pubs or restaurants or even very much on parks since police are now being stationed. There's a, a, a nice walk near where I live where the police are now being stationed. So if you dare to walk your dog and talk to a neighbour, you'll, uh, you'll be sent straight back to your home. The only way many people can pick up information, especially that relating to the lockdown, is online. Mm. And if they don't have that, then they really have very little. So, so the, the power that YouTube wields over this is quite scary. And it reminded me actually of um, an extract in, in Douglas Murray's book, The Madness of Crowds, where he talks about the, the power that Google has over Google searching. So that if you were to type in something like Renaissance art, as a, as a random example that he talks about, rather than coming up with the most renowned and most famous and most popular pieces of Renaissance art, it pops up with the art that Google wants you to see. The ones which by uh, certain artists who most won't have heard of, but for one reason or another, usually relating to something to do with identity. Uh, these are the, the topics which come up first. And for people like us who are in our 20s now, um, or others who are older, who have had the internet there through their lives, but really only had proper access to it from mid-teens, it's not too dangerous. We've already had a lot of our education before we were taken in by the, the likes of Google and YouTube. But for people who are being born now and who will be raised where they're given tablets at primary school, in fact, one of the measures taken by the government to, to try and uh, alleviate the, the problems of lockdown in education has been to buy millions of tablets and laptops to give to young people to learn from them. So they're handing over the educational tools to the to multilateral, uh, multinational, national, sorry, corporations which you talk of, which don't align with our views. We can't in any way um, try and enforce the way that they put out their content. The power is completely in their hands. And that's really quite worrying. The, the fact that we aren't even allowed to ask questions about this policy, which is, you know, deeply affecting our lives in every, every feasible way um, is worrying. Yeah. And um, it's, it's not just the, the, the videos we see of, you know, coppers, breaking into someone's house and, 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 and arresting them in, in their own living room. It's, um, it's something that we have absolutely, like we could probably fire our prime minister at the next election if he wanted to. The, the, there's no mechanism for getting rid of the CEO of Google or Jack Dorsey or, or Zuckerberg. They have their power. And as long as you know, they keep the board happy, it, it, it's absolute. Mm. It's, it's on the problem I think with the, the BBC and Netflix actually where a lot of the criticism of the BBC I, I agree with, but the, when, when groups like to fund the BBC cheer on increasing viewing figures for Netflix, again, over which we have no control, um, and, uh, and cheer on the decline of the BBC, I get quite confused. I don't see why they'd rather have a company which we have absolutely no say over, which we can't try and change in any way whatsoever. They'll just laugh at us if we ask. The, the controversy over the crown is a good example of that. Um, and also the, the program Cuties, which featured last year, which um, caused a lot of a lot of controversy. Um, but it didn't matter. The program remained. They'll make more like it. And there's nothing we can do about it. The power is completely, as with YouTube and with Google, in their hands. Yes, and it's, it, it, it rings 
eerily similar to Brexit, where you know the gripe that most people had was there is this unaccountable, unelected, unremovable monolith in Brussels who mm. to at the, on their own whim affect our lives. But again, we had a referendum on that. There is that is within the realm of democracy. We there's there's no feasible way we we could we could vote on whether or not to you know secede from Twitter. <laughs> I think it's a key problem with all these institutions, is Google, Facebook, these multinational corporations, is that they are now more powerful than national governments. Yeah. I mean, we've all probably heard it, heard it in geography class that multinational corporations can go into the third world and basically control its economy, but we're also seeing it in the first world as well. I mean, we saw this in the 2020 election when um, Trump, um, the Trump campaign got hold of a Hunter, the Hunter Biden story. Um, yeah. may, may not have heard of it because as soon as it was out it was completely wiped from the internet and um that's of course to protect the um the chosen candidate of silicon valley mm. and uh, this is also bring back to um a lack of trust we c we no longer trust our institutions for very good reason because they represent very one-sided very narrow interests and are with with a with supporting lockdown, it all goes back to sort of the micromanagement by the elite. Yeah, near enough control of over all our lives. You can't do this, you can't do that. I think Peter Hitchens described it as being treated like a child. Just having your hand handheld around everywhere with no autonomy of your own. And we're also seeing that play out in the field of information. Oh no, you can't read that. It's not good for you. And it's, it brings back to the C.S. Lewis quote on, um, uh, a tyranny exercise for the good of its own citizens would torture us repeatedly without end. I think we've certainly seen that with the lockdown and we'll see it continue long past it. Yes, it's, it's an interesting uh, turnaround of, of you know, this, this, this idea of there being this forbidden knowledge. Um, it's almost like it, it, it rings reminiscent of, um, you know, the sort of the more sensorious elements of, you know, the, the old Christian world where, um, you know, her heresy was, you know, punished and, and, and scrubbed away. Um, this is what we're seeing now. Is it anything that, that uh, goes against or, or even questions the prevailing narrative is just, it, it, it can be and it is just instantly scrubbed clean by, again, something that we have no, so something that is so over our heads that we have no, we, we couldn't even begin to rein it in. And it's interesting that you say about how people before would be punished for what they said. It's, it's not like Talk Radio was punished when it was cancelled. It's just as though it had never happened. Yeah. It, it, if someone is punished, then what they said is still known. It's in the open. People think, ah, he said that, and he was in trouble for that. Whereas in this case, unless you were able to watch the video in the, in the few moments it was there before it was deleted, you just won't know it ever happened. But of course, yeah. if, you can't, if you can't think out loud and have people hear your arguments and challenge the arguments, um, then no thinking takes place. You just accept everything. Yeah, Nothing's ever challenged. There's a no diet of worms, just room 101. Yeah. Yeah. Um, social media uh, gives us a nice little segue into uh, yeah. my, my story. Um, and as, as you said, it, it, you know, for us, it's okay because it's not okay, but it's, it's manageable because we, we grew up before it. I, I remember, you know, having a, crappy modem with dial up and you know before it was all all comes thing and now it's in your pocket it's in your, in your hand and the way that's affecting kids 
leads, it leads into my story, which is uh, the horrifying murder of Ollie Stevens in Reading. Yeah. Um, just to go over a quick recap of what happened, Ollie Stevens was a 13-year-old boy in Reading who was uh, dating a young lady who, um, for reasons far beyond me, was uh, sending new pictures to other teenage boys. He uh, got angry, had a go at her, and she put out a story on her Snapchat, which was an appeal for lads in the area to turn up to a setup and rob and or stab him. Now, what happened was it went a bit too far, them being, you know, 13, 14 year olds, and Ollie was stabbed to death. Um, it's such a horrifying case but also morbidly fascinating too. Um, before we go into it further, what are you guys' brief thoughts on the matter? We will hear a lot about youth violence in the, um, in the media. Of, often just unprovoked violent attacks and this is just, just another, well, another link in the chain. What's causing it, when will it end? Sort of to got, ties together all the all the themes uh, which we sort of uh, complain about in modern life. You've got the the overuse of social media by people who are too young to understand it and to use it sensibly, and then of course the the availability uh, among young people of such dangerous weapons which can take people's lives away, which just seems shocking. Um, I've got an article here as well from uh, sometime last year or even a couple of years ago, 2019, um, where on Amazon, you have frequently bought together uh, items. So when you buy one thing, it tells you what people usually buy alongside it. And there was a, it was suggesting that a 14 year old who, who flagged the issue, um, along with his school rucksack, brought a knife. Mm. The, the bag was actually listed as well as a, a little college school bag. And you could buy a, bit, a large kitchen knife this was something which has been commonly brought together on, uh, on, on Amazon as an example for someone who is 14 years of age. Um, the, the two issues together, when you have this dangerous weapons alongside social media uh, and people living in, in close proximity and also young people having uh, relationships in this way, which I don't know, also seems slightly unusual to adultish uh, for, for people of such a young age. It really is quite a, a despairing image. Yes, there, there, there were photographs leaked of the young lad. I, I won't um, share or hint at them because he is underage. Um, but he was posing with a, a knife that looked about 10 inches long. It was, a, it was not a kitchen knife. It was not a butter knife. It was, you know, something that could do real, real harm to someone. Um, and it's, just, it's, it's, it's so indicative of the time we live in where kids aren't kids anymore. You know, like, I, I don't know you guys, but when I, when I was 13, that was, that was the absolute first thing from my, from my mind. I was all about, you know, playing football and climbing trees and, you know, still. And, but the, the idea that these kids are in, you know, what appears to be sexual relationships at this age, uh, carrying deadly weapons, uh, obsessed with this sort of imported American gang culture, it, it, it paints, mm. a really, paints a really grim picture of um, life in this century for our young. I think it's, it, it points to a, a, this isn't necessarily specific in this case, we're talking more generally because you wouldn't want to presume uh, the, the family settings of these people without knowing, but generally um, 
this sort of issue of youth violence um, points to the wider problem of neglect of children. Yep. Where we, we, we read through the lockdown that children, um, because they're not going to school, are forgetting how to use cutlery. That was one of the examples that came up. And you think, well, why do they need to only learn this when they go to school? Why can't their family teach them this? But of course, a lot of children won't have a full family or that which they do have are neglectful towards them and don't take care of their responsibilities. And so for years, we've seen uh, stories. Uh, of course, you've got the obvious examples of, of parents not reading to their children. Tying into social media, there's one report which showed increasingly parents are using Alexa to, to read their children bedtime stories. But even those are the lucky ones because uh, schools across the country, not just because of the coronavirus, but years before, were having to hire professional nappy changers and toothbrush overseers because these responsibilities just weren't being cared for in the home. Yeah, it's a good place to go into the whole um, impact of, you know, diminishing families on, on kids. Um, I know, Michael, you have a lot to say about this, so I'm going to politely hand you the soapbox. Yeah, well, I mean, I've, I've talked already of the, the increasing signs of neglect within society, of the, the tools which schools are having to pick up so as to take over where the family leave off. I mean, this is, this is one of the interesting questions around, say, sex education, where conservatives uh, like me, and I'm sure you two, are against sex education. We think it's the state reaching too much into the uh, educational development of children. But then at the same time, when you think about it properly, um, people say this is the parents' responsibility to decide when this happens. Well, if we have so many parents across the country who can't even teach their children how to clean their teeth or how to, um, how to use a potty, then it, you're on a bit of a non-starter. I can understand how schools find topics like this so difficult, but this, I think, is really important, which we, over this year, 2021, need to nail in when discussing education and the raising of children and lockdowns, is that these problems haven't been born out of the lockdown alone. They've been intensified by them, and the fact that children haven't been able to go to schools has, of course, been very damaging to education and just to general development of children and young people, but that these problems persisted in society long before anybody had even heard of the word furlough mm. or before we were told to go and eat out to help out. These problems have existed for a long time. And if we're going to solve them, then we can't just solve the lockdown problem, i.e. end lockdown, the problems will go away. They'll continue unless we go to the roots of the problems which existed long before. Mm. Yeah, this, this, yeah, this is a, this is a bottom-up issue. And uh, it, 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 it does tie back into the murder where, you know, um, as education as an arm of the state becomes uh, more and more of a parental figure in, in kids' lives, they, they become sort of, you know, one of a, a mess. And it, 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 it's quite dehumanising. And people, uh, I've seen people who've been, who've been dehumanised kind of lash out. And it, it, ties, it ties into the first story too. I mean, the people who, who stormed the Capitol building have... You know, spent the last four years being called, you know, Nazis and racists and xenophobes mm. and subhuman, and and that makes them lash out. And it's the same, same, same with these kids in Reading, where, you know, I, I again, this is this is a this is an assumption, but I'm gonna go ahead and assume that you know it's not all there at home. There, there, there wasn't a parent figure who, you know, taught them uh, virtue and restraint and and um, sort of civic mind discipline. Yeah, discipline. Mm. And uh, as a result, I mean, not directly, but as a series of consequences, that person now, 
you know, feels it appropriate to not only carry a massive knife, but to use it. An interesting point on authority as well, after the year we've just come out of. The most authoritative year in terms of governmental power uh, in, in non-wartime that we've seen in, in a very long time. And yet authority hasn't been given where it's needed. So the schools largely were closed, so children weren't being handed down any notion of discipline. Not that they do when schools are open, where you have these meagre strike systems, where you have free strikes and you can stand in the hallway for 10 minutes or something like this. Um, in the home, the, the same problems have existed. If you're from a neglected background, then you're, you're not going to be taught proper authority. You might be, if anything, taught it uh, too vigorously in the extent that you, you come to despise authority rather than respect it. Mm -hmm. um, the police, who should be walking around communities, seen as, again, local authoritative but respectful figures, um, haven't been patrolling as they haven't been since the late 60s against proper crime but instead go about droning over walkers in the peak district so again it's we've, we've come out of the year of great authority but none of it has been used properly and none of it has been used in a way that children can come to understand and respect and to themselves use discipline mm. it seems that the state the state is usually the final check of of societal malaise it's when the parents can't look after the kids, the state intervenes. As parents are perhaps too busy to educate their children, the state intervenes. We have now lost the state. We lost the family seemingly the same time. So it, it just seems there's, there's chaos in childhoods and children do not know where to look. And, that, and in that vacuum, you of course have social media and electronic devices. I mean, we've all heard the saying that um, you uh, used the TV as a babysitter. Well, mm. that, that's, that's now equivalent to an entire generation of children. That is the norm, not the exception. And, and, when you, uh, and this causes children to um, grow up faster because they have no one else to rely on. They, they aren't afforded a childhood. And that's how you um, get these very violent acts and these very hyper-masculine um, boys who are trying to um, lash out at society. Right, yeah. Quite amusing when you talk to... Sorry, wait, you go ahead. Sorry, uh, yeah, I was going to point to try, trying to sort of assert themselves. Um, you know, when when the most naturally forming hierarchy of, of a young lad being, you know, your father than you, when that's when that's gone, in that, you know, in history shows that, you know, in, in a vacuum, the worst things happen, the worst things sort of come to the front, and it's a, it's a, it's a vacuum there of, you know, um, male accountability to the father. Absolutely. And it's, it's amusing now when you talk to young people who are growing up and try and bond over the, the same modern methods which have been used to raise us all. We talk about the TV because we, we may have only got phones when we were what, 11, 13, something like that. But this all seems very old fashioned now for, for people who are quite young who are growing up. TV, we don't watch that. We go on TikTok and Instagram and all this. That's the, as soon as technology took hold of educating children, of guiding them through, in a sense, um, their development, the the rate of, of, of change has increased overwhelmingly. Mm. Should we uh, talk about some relatively happy stories to, to, wrap, to wrap things up? <laughs> I mean, what, what we have, you know, more political violence, more censorship from corporations, and now uh, 
the murder of a child. I mean, uh, what what's happened this week that, that we can sort of you know take some uh, joy in? I mean, the 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 Assange story was pretty was was pretty big. Yeah, I think that was one message on the on the freedom front which we could take um, as a slight moment of relief. Julian Assange was um, refused extradition to the US, which the US were pushing for, um, where he would be put on trial for his um, for releasing sensitive information. I think quite a lot of it was military uh, information from the US. Um, although even here, I have to give a little bit of caution. It was a positive ruling, and it's good that the extradition was refused. However, the grounds on which the extradition was refused are quite interesting. It seems like um, this only took place in light of Assange's mental health for fear that he would, if trialled in the US, end up killing himself in a prison cell, um, rather than because of the grounds that people can't be extradited for so-called political crimes or speech crimes. So the door is still open, really, when you think about it, uh, to the notion of extraditions on political grounds to other countries, whether it be the US or somewhere in the EU. And you have to then ask, why not places like China, say, as well? Um, so we, we take it as a, a slight moment of cause of relief, but also must be slightly cautious not to get too ahead of ourselves. Have you seen anything in the news which has lifted your spirits over the week, rather than the usual lockdown, which is fairly the opposite? Luke? Well, I always find nice things to write for Bournemouth, but I think a, a good moment would be formally leaving the European Union. Now, the Europe, I, I, I first got into politics when studying the EU election. I was 15 at the time. I'm now 20. It's... Um, so yeah, it's, it's good to sort of finally have that behind us and you're always going to get the Europhiles want to rejoin. But I think that for at long last government priorities, when COVID eventually ends, will be on other things other than Brexit. Mm. It seems strange, actually, for people like us, Luke, because I'm the same. I was, well, I've been a year older than you, 16, um, when the, the debate started cracking off and that was what gave my interest in politics. And I think what helped me to realise what side I was on different questions like state patriotism, things like this. What do we do now that Brexit has finished? What do we, that was almost the, the main focus of our attention for, for five years. It was the reason as well a lot of uh, politics students at university said that intake in political courses had increased so much. Mm -hmm. I wonder whether lockdown will politicize people as much as, uh, as Brexit has, probably will really. I, 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 have a, I have a slightly different story there where, um, so the, the referendum happened after my first year of uni, I was 19, and it was the first thing I, I'd ever voted in, and I voted leave. And um, I think the next day, the campus was like it was on, it was like it was on fire. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it, it, there was this look, people were walking around with these, like, mortified expressions on their faces, you know, people were like... Wearing all black. I, I went to a lecture the next day, and um, the, it was a seminar, sorry, and the lecturer basically came in and said, this is going to be a therapy session for, for anyone who... <laughs> you know uh contemplate what happened last night and um i think that's when i knew that um this wasn't over and it was going to be a, a fight and you know i was by then i was interested in politics but that was what was what kind of galvanized me to partake in it mm. but now it is over and it doesn't seem 
likely there will be a way back in, at least not for some time, hopefully. Although, who knows, maybe maybe this is all tied in perfectly. Maybe the, the economic fallout from lockdown is going to lead us knocking on the back door of the EU, begging for us. <laughs> I hope not. That, that will be the main conversation for the next five years. The Brexit chapter closes, another one opens. Yes. What would be the what would be the the, the portmanteau of of rejoining the EU? Is it rejoin? <laughs> Something like grovel, grovel for forgiveness. Grovel, that's a good one. That's Change your play again. I don't know. And of course, because we forget politics so quickly, Boris Johnson will be the one arguing for it for his return. <laughs> <laughs> Probably left one of his mistresses in Spain or something. <laughs> One of the kids. <laughs> On that bombshell, I think we'll we'll return next week. We'll pick another uh, another topic each, which we'll discuss. Hopefully, there'll be something a little more positive, which we can delve into. But if not, I'm sure there'll be uh, plenty to film a discussion anyway. Thanks both for joining on, and thanks everybody for listening. Have a good weekend. Yes, thank you. Thank you.